Hey, thank you for joining us today. This is Rebecca Tapia, your podcast host. If you're finding any value of this podcast, please do share it and leave a review. And also, nothing discussed here is formal medical, legal, or financial advice. And this is not a patient-doctor relationship. It is really just a couple of people sitting around, or maybe just myself, discussing difficult topics related to aging parents. Enjoy. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining us for another episode of Real Conversations About Aging Parents. Today, I have brought Alexis Gopal. She is a physician that's also going through some of the issues we've been talking about so many times on this podcast, and she's been gracious enough to join me today to talk more about her story and then even some inspiration she has for some topics she's focusing on herself. Welcome, Alexis. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Rebecca. It's such a pleasure. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I just want to jump in and get started. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, sure. I am an internist. I've been an internist for about 30 years and been doing functional medicine for the past few years, but recently had to to kind of change careers a little bit to something more flexible because I'm taking care of my 93-year-old mother. So right now I'm doing utilization management, which gives me a pretty flexible schedule. So tell me that before you made that decision, what did your life look like? It sounds like you're pretty busy. I know you have a couple of children. Before you got to this point, what was a normal kind of day or week for you? Pre, before starting to take care of, of both, actually both my parents, even my father before he passed, I had a pretty busy schedule five days a week. 50, 60 hours a week, commuting to Manhattan from Connecticut, full day of patience. They're just super, super busy schedule. My daughters are grown, so they're, they're, they're pretty independent. So it was a lot more hectic when they were younger and, and I was, I'm a single parent. So I raised them since they were two and one. So it was when they were younger, life was a lot more stressful, but it was just as hectic even after they, they grew up. So um, that's kind of how my life was before I, I, I had to stop to, t- to, to help with my parents. Can we trace back to, if, I don't know if you can think of a moment or maybe it was just sort of more of a, a slower thing where you started to think that we'll go back to your dad first, that your dad might need help. Was there a diagnosis? Was there an event that, I mean, when did your brain change to, okay, I'm busy with this career. I'm taking care of these kids. Oh, wait a minute. My parents might need something. It actually started pretty early on. It actually started when my children were in elementary school. My, I always lived in Connecticut. My parents live in New York. So my father had an event years before he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's where he had complete heart block. He had a syncable episode and I got a call from my mom. He's in the emergency room. I left work and had to walk out on a room full of patients, drop my kids off with a neighbor and drive down to New York City in a frenzy into the emergency room to see my dad hooked up to a temporary pacemaker. And he, I'm talking to him as we're waiting for the cardiologist and his eyes rolled in the back of his head and he just went out and I screamed and, and they took him right to the operating room to put a permanent pacemaker in him. I'm kind of the the main person that they caught, you know, that they rely on when, when, when they need help. So that it actually started early. It actually started a lot longer before my father, my father developed Alzheimer's. Just so we can kind of trace it. Do you know about what year that would have been? Oh my goodness. Wow. Gosh. Doesn't like, have to be exact, but just kind of my, really young. So I would say probably 20 years ago. 20 years ago. So maybe like the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. All right. And do you have any siblings? You mentioned you're the only, or you're the main one. Do you have siblings? I am a sibling. I had, well, I had, I had three siblings. Two of my siblings are deceased and I have a brother who lives in Texas and yeah. He's and how not, involved is the brother, is your brother? Not, not involved. Not involved. Okay. So they come to you because you're available, you're willing, interested, you're also a physician. So that's kind of how that got determined. Yeah. 
Okay. Gotcha. Okay. So once he went through this heart block thing, was he, so he wasn't requiring any care before that. Was he working or was he retired or? They're both retired, very active. Their thing was antiquing. They would go driving and antiquing. That's how they spent a good part of their retirement. But shortly after that incident was when he started gradually, we started gradually seeing signs of, of Alzheimer's he started getting forgetful, but initially he was pretty, he was pretty good. He was able to feed and, and clothe himself and for a while there, even drive for a bit. But then as he declined, I, I'll never forget the day I had to take away his car keys. I mean, that was a brutal, that was a brutal moment, but it was a gradual thing, but my mom was always his caretaker. She was always able to take care of him and I I would help her as as she needed so yeah so but when you said gradual can you just give us a two or three things that you noticed that you felt like in retrospect were changes that sort of pre-indicated something was happening I think in hindsight when I look back I, I think there were certain things he was tired more my father was always energetic and very, very bright, very, very brilliant man, but he was tired more. And he would, even my mom noticed, like he would do things like on, on the drive from, from their home in New York to my place in Connecticut or, or vice versa, he would have to pull over to take a nap. I mean, that was really unusual for him. He was just a lot more tired and, and a lot more withdrawn, but that was before his memory became an issue, but I, I think that was like the earliest signs because that was so unlike him. I, in retrospect, I think that was the beginning of his Alzheimer's. And as one of the questions I'm always curious about when I'm talking to a physician that's going through this is, do you think being a physician made it, made you more sensitive to these changes that you were more concerned, or I've seen it also the other way where you're like, oh, that's just, maybe normal aging or sort of maybe that's depression or situational. And so it's almost like we can override our own thoughts about it. Like, would you, or would you pretty much in the middle? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I think I was unaware. With your background. Well, I think I was unaware of those early changes. I didn't, I only found out about those things years later when he was actually, didn't even remember who I, who I was. Those early, early things were not pointed out to me. So I was not aware that he was doing those things. And I think even if I was, I probably wouldn't have, have, have thought it was Alzheimer's. I probably would have thought, well, maybe he's just getting old or maybe he's getting depressed or maybe he needs to go for a checkup and see if he's got a vitamin deficiency or what well, I, I would have attributed it to something else. But I was not aware of those things happening at the time, because at the time, all I knew is they were, they were still driving around antiquing and doing their thing. I, I wasn't realizing that those things were going on. How did you and your mom make the decision to actually have him evaluated this? Can you just tell me the logistics of it? So you took him to a neurologist or like, what did that actually look like to arrive at the official diagnosis? My parents, one of the keys to their longevity is they, they've always been very conscious of their health, both of them. And they've always gone for regular checkups and things. And I think the moment she noticed that he started to get more forgetful, she mentioned it to his doctor and his doctor ran some tests, the usual workup for, for dementia with CAT scans and blood work and, and such. And um, I, I think that's kind of what led to it. I, I was kind of ob oblivious to it, but, but I knew, I knew when she became concerned and I think that's when he started to become more forgetful and less active and less functional. Um, and it, they ended up being referred to a neurologist by their primary care doctor. And they, they, they started him on Namenda and, and such. And, and that was the beginning of the process. But that was very early on when he was still, he still remembered who I was and I can go to the house and still play checkers with him and still have conversations with him and, and, and things like that. And he was still driving and, and, and things like that. So that was pretty early on before his, his really, really big decline. Oh, tell me 
about your experience in taking the keys away. You mentioned that as a really, really, really hard point in the process here. Can you tell me how you decided that and then how it actually happened? So, as I said, my, my, my father was still pretty active and independent even early on in his diagnosis. And one day I got a frantic call from my mom because she said, he, he, he said he was going out to the store and it should have taken 20 minutes and he's not back. It's been a couple of hours. Well, come to find out 18 hours passed and my, and my father never came back and we were frantic and called the police and, and just all of us were beside ourselves. And he ended up, I'm not sure if you're familiar with New York, they live in Queens, but he ended up out in Long Island there was a, a sewage disposal facility and they had a river behind it. And there was a, there was like a, by the river, there was kind of like a, they put a fence with some kind of spikes in it. And his car was, was stopped by one of those spikes. It blew out his tire. And they, the, the workers at this facility called the police and he was taken to the hospital and somehow on his person, on his, on his ID, they found my mom's number and called her and, and she went, she went to, to get him. That was the moment we knew he can't, he can't drive anymore. That's terrifying. So oh, how, you said how many hours y'all didn't know what had happened to him? 18, he was gone 18 for 18 hours, hours before we heard from the, from the police actually they had taken the police had taken him to the hospital and the hospital called us but that was horrifying that was that was just the most horrifying moment of our lives and when he came back home my mom just couldn't deal with it she she she, she for, for, my mom doesn't drive and my mom just couldn't couldn't like tell him herself you can't drive you can't do it and and nobody else was around so i i told him listen i'm taking your keys and my, my dad is always like a very passive, low key kind of person, never gets angry. He was furious. He was beside himself. He got so furious that I took his keys because that was his independence. You know, mm -hmm. that was full of his independence. And he just was. I, I've never seen him like that. And, but that was the moment we decided that he just, he just had enough dementia that he just couldn't continue to drive. He had also had a couple of fender benders prior to that. And we, we didn't make the connection because, because, you know, they live in a very busy part of New York city, but, but that was the moment. And, and that was a very difficult moment because he was just defeated. It defeated him. It felt like it was almost like he felt that was the end of his life. And that was many, many years before he actually passed. And did, I know that that moment is tough, but did it, did even with his dementia, did it keep resurfacing every time you saw him? Did he ask for his keys back? Did he like, how did that happen in the ensuing yes, weeks or months? He's very angry and he continued to ask for his keys back. At one point, my mom gave him the keys back one because I don't, I didn't, I didn't live with them. At one point she gave him the keys back and, and I had to take them away again. I mean, it's like, how could you, oh, because he was driving me crazy and he kept asking and what was I going to do? And I was like, you, you, you can't do that. And I ended up taking them away for the second and final time. But he, he, I think that was, that was really the beginning of the end for him because he, he, he just saw it as such a, such a loss of independence and uh, just a, a really negative milestone for him. So you had described him as a very, very smart man. And one of the cruelties of dementia is it, it removes their insight into why that would be safe. So were there, was there anything left as far as him being able to say, Hey, I understand I made, I was in an accident. You couldn't like, did he have any of that sort of insight left that that made it any easier or was that also gone? No, no, he, what, no, what, 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 no, he didn't have that insight at that point. And what, what ended up happening and why he dropped it is because he gradually became more and more demented. And so it didn't, didn't, 
dawn on him that that had happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why he gave up the fight is because he, he gradually beca- became more and more demented. And what year did he pass away? He passed away in 2021. 2021. Oh, okay. So, so fairly recently. Yeah. And then what medical condition finally caused him to pass after all that? So believe it or not, up until the end, he lived with my mom. My mom was his caretaker, even at the end when he couldn't walk and he was incontinent. <laughs> she, she's, they're both that world, world war II generation, the depression, you know, they're a lot, they're a lot, they had me when they were very much older. So they're, they're, they're probably your grandparents' generation. It's, it's like they're, they're, they're older than like, if they were my parents, they, they would be 20 years older than me. They're actually 40 years older than me. So they grew up in a generation where it, it's like, they're fierce and independent. They do everything on their own. So my mom ended up taking care of him to the very end when he really should have been in a, in a nursing home. And although they had AIDS sporadically, my mom's kind of a very challenging personality and she would fire them. So, so AIDS never lasted very long. So she did the bulk of the work herself with my help, but, but she did the bulk of the work herself until the end. And how the aim at the end came to pass was he just developed a bowel obstruction and he ended up in the hospital with a fever and a bowel obstruction and and he ended up passing. We ended up making a couple of decisions. He had had that pacemaker from the complete heart block and had been having his battery changed every five years. And he was up for, for his battery to be replaced while he was in the hospital with this bowel obstruction. And we made a decision as a family not to have the battery replaced because we would just be prolonging something. And it, 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 it ended up that he had a bowel obstruction and he became septic and he passed from that. And they wanted to know do you want to pursue this? It probably is a malignancy that's causing the brawl obstruction. And we said, no, just comfort measures. Just please make him comfortable. And then eventually he, he passed. And, uh, and so at this point, you were still living in a different state, right? So your mom was kind of front and center up until that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, had you left your practice yet? No, no, that's just, okay. Saying. No, I was still in practice. I, I just left practice a, a few months ago a few months ago very recently yeah so I think that's what's really fascinating about your story and again thank you so much for for sharing with everybody and I think your story is echoing what a lot of people are going through so after he passed in 2021 how did your mom recover from that how did that go I think my mom was really drained and she had neglected herself from them. I mean, she took care of him for 20 years. This went on, this was 20 years in the making. And I think she was so drained that I don't wanna say she felt relieved because they were married for 70 years, but she was just so drained and, and neglected and so worn out that it took time for her to catch up. She hadn't seen the dentist in a long time. She hadn't had any kind of respite while she was taking care of him. So I think she was too overwhelmed with her own physical well-being to even grieve him properly. And what what age is she now? She's going to be 93 next week. 93 next week. Okay. And so between 2021 and now, so the last last couple of years, what sequence of events or thoughts did you have that made you think you might need to do a career change or like, what did, what did all that decision-making look like? Well, she's still completely with it. And she's still, when my dad passed physically, she did for herself. I mean, she would do, even though she doesn't drive, She'll walk to the market, do the grocery shopping, clean the house. I mean, she's always been like the energizer bunny. So initially it was not a a huge issue for me, but then gradually 
not her mental health, but her physical health started to, to fail and she became more frail and it became more difficult to walk long distances. And, and she's very, she lost a tremendous amount of weight and she went through a cancer workup. She doesn't have cancer, but I think the toll of taking care of my dad really took a toll on her. So her physical decline, she needed more help with things around the house and more help with shopping and such. And so after my father's death, I needed to go there more frequently. I was probably going there maybe twice a month, once or twice a month to help out and, and things like that. But then after he passed, I found myself having to go there at least once a week because she needed help with groceries and she needed help with cleaning and she needed help with doing things. Whereas before physically, she was more able. It got to the point where I had to go there so frequently and things started happening like falls. And then, mm-hmm. I know and, uh, there was one day where she got vertigo and fell and, 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 and you know how it is. You can't just leave the cancel a day of patients like that at the last minute. I I mean, there's hell to pay when my dad passed. I can't even believe this, but when my dad passed and I had to take a day or two off because he passed patients complained to administration because I took the time off. Oh and, my gosh. And administration, they let them know, well, her, her father passed and well, she has responsibilities. So it got to the point where, where I couldn't maintain this work week and this commute to, to work and this lifestyle and be there for her the way I needed to be. And I had to make a decision. I needed some flexibility. Um, so it was just recently where I had to make that decision because yes, clinical medicine just doesn't give you that flexibility. You can't just, like I said, cancel a day of patients because you have an emergency to take care of. So, and, and, and yes, totally agree. And for those non-physicians listening, I, I hope a sort of an unintended benefit of the podcast is they can sort of hear the insider view of what physicians go through too. And some of the burnout factors that we have and you just mentioned a big one, which is the flexibility to be able to take care of your family, but then also the responsibilities that the rigid responsibilities we can have in clinical medicine. So, so just logistically, did you end up moving to New York or your mom moved to Connecticut with you? Neither, neither. Oh, neither. Okay. I still live in Connecticut and she still lives in her home. She refuses to leave her home. That's the home that I was, I grew up in. So they've been in that home for like almost 60 something years and she won't leave. I've offered her to come and live with me. My brother's offered her to come to Texas and she refuses to leave her home. And I can't move in with her. I I can't move in with her. We have a very complicated relationship, my mom and I. And I don't know how to put this. I don't, I'm not sure how to phrase this. We have a very complicated relationship and always have. And I don't think I'd, I'd be able to live. We wouldn't be able to live with each other. Let's put it that way. So how do you have a, a complicated relationship, but then also the other part of your brain that says, okay, I really want to be there for her. I'm like, what part, what is driving the changes that you've made and the sacrifices you've made to make sure that she's taken care of. I'm not even sure I'm phrasing that correctly. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. How do you make that decision? I can't walk away. No, I'm all, I'm really, I'm all she has. And uh, I don't know how to phrase this delicately, but she's alienated a lot of people and I'm all she has. And We may have a complicated relationship and a complicated past, but I'm a very loyal person and I couldn't sleep at night knowing that she's there alone and needing help. And I had the ability to help her and I didn't. So no matter how complicated relationship you have with a parent, there's always that love and loyalty there. And so I, I can't turn my back on her. So I guess, I don't know if that answers your question, but. 
How was your relationship with your dad? Was it different? Yeah, it was. I mean, they were very different personalities. My dad, like like I said, he was a very passive, happy-go-lucky, lovely, pleasant person, whereas my mom was a very domineering, my way or the highway kind of person. They're very, very different kind of polar opposites. So, so everyone in my family got along with him more. He was not a difficult personality. He was a very easygoing person. And when you think about the care that she needs and you had, say somebody came and offered you two options. So you could either change up your career, become more flexible and help meet some of those needs, or you could pay this person, I don't know, just making this up. $30 an hour to go help with the groceries or the cleaning is your, like the way that you think about it. Do you have this history that she's fired people before that have come to try to help? And you think it's too much trouble to do that? Or do you feel like they wouldn't do a good job? Like for people that there are a lot of children of aging parents that throw a lot of money if they can afford to do so at some of these care needs. And how does your brain organize that? Well, I know for a fact and I, I know for a fact, because I've hired people and she fires them, she does not want a stranger in her home. Even when my dad was sick, that's why she did the bulk of the work herself. She just doesn't trust. She's like not very trusting. And, and she, she just doesn't want strangers in her home. I offered to, to hire a cleaning lady for her. No, I don't want a stranger in my home. She just doesn't feel comfortable with strangers in her home. And I think part of the reason I don't even attempt to try to get, I mean, I I keep offering her, I could get somebody a few hours every week to help and whatever. I still, I still make the attempt to offer because my help is limited. I still work and, and it is a distance to get there, but I have to respect her wishes and she does not want anybody in her home. She just, that's how she is. And that's how she always been. So how do you make that? So the the thought, I have to respect her wishes, but where's the line there? So if there is adequate background checked help available and she just doesn't want them, how does your brain reconcile that? I think I know the other shoe is going to drop at some point, meaning that she's going to require more care than I can give. I can't, I, I'm, I'm, I'm single. I don't have a partner. I don't have a significant other. It's my salary and that's it. And if I don't work, I don't eat. Right. So I can't just drop everything to, to go to care of her because I'll be bankrupt. Um, so I know, and, and, I, and I, I think I try to avoid this because I know that day is going to come, but there's going to come a time where she's going to need more help than I can give. And then that she won't have a choice and I won't have a choice that we'll have to get somebody either in the house to take care of her. I don't think she would ever go to a nursing home, but we'll have to at least get somebody in the house to take care of her. We're not there yet, but that day will come. That almost sounds like you're in sort of a transition stage where you've become more flexible, but you do have a hard limit on, look, if you require somebody to help you shower or go to the restroom, like that's like, you're going to continue working. And like you said, I mean, that's your career and that's your livelihood. So you do have some boundaries. We just haven't hit them yet, but you're anticipating anticipating. whenever that time comes that that will be a very difficult transition for her. Yeah. It's going to be a very difficult transition for her, but it's almost like every, every periodically, like every couple of months, it's like, I, I ask, are we there yet? And she says, no, like, are we there yet? And she says, no, like every couple of months, I'll have that conversation. Why don't you let me hire somebody? I'm not there yet. Like she, I think she, in her mind knows there's a point where she, she just has to acquiesce and, and allow somebody in the home to help her. And she knows that she's not there yet. And I just let her be as long as she's safe and she's healthy and she's eating and, and she can get by with the help that I give her. I take her shopping. I help her clean. I do the things that she needs. As long as she's okay, I, I, 
I, I acquiesce to that, but, but she knows, and I know that day is coming where she's going to lose her independence and she's going to need help. And, and I, like I said, I don't have a choice, but to work. I wish I had the luxury of a second income where I could take some time off and, and, and go help her and be with her, but I, I don't. And when the end comes for her at the end, when, when it's imminent that she's not going to pass, all I can do is like count on FMLA to take some time off and be with her, but that's all I have. I don't have any other family support. I'm really on my own. And so I'm just winging this. I'm really just winging this. And, and how many, if we had to just average out on a week, like how many hours a week are you like either en route to help her or they're physically helping her? Well, right now I, I would say it's, it's probably, it's once a week. It's, it's a two hour drive there. It's a two hour drive back. The other week I spent, I spent the night, which I, I rarely do, but, but uh, probably one full day, one full day a week. And what about, so we, we talk sometimes about just the, the time expended, if you were actually like doing a time card and you're like, okay, well, I left at this time and I got back at this time, but I'm also more interested in, in, in the complete sentence about that, which is, well, how much of your, your mental attention and energy is occupied outside of that, worrying about her coordinating that communicating, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And that's 24 seven, 24, seven, 24, seven. You can ask anybody, you can ask all my friends. Oh, that's all I talk about. I, I, I call her multiple times a day to make sure she's okay. I just got her a life alert. I, I don't make plans anymore. I used to make plans with people like, Hey, and I don't make plans anymore. Cause I don't know what's going to happen. So I, although physically I'm there with her a day of the week meant mentally it's a 24 seven thing. So it's interesting because you describe her as fairly isolated. And then what you're describing to me is you've now also become fairly isolated in your own right, sort of in, in support of that. How does she receive your care? Like how, how, um, how does she talk about it? Is she, appreciative does she understand that that you've changed careers like how does how does she how, if you had to guess how she conceptualizes that care what would you guess that's a good question because like i said we have a complicated relationship so it's almost like it's not acknowledged. Like it's like it's expected, but it's not acknowledged. That's what you're supposed to do. I, I don't know how to answer it any better than that. Did, did she do that for her parents? No. Never took care of her parents a day in her life. And what did they? Was it a situation where they just never needed it, or they needed it and she wasn't available? Or do you know? I know that was they, a... they needed it, and a sibling. There's her siblings took care of the parents. Oh, I see. Okay, so she did see it modeled. It just wasn't her participating right. in the modeling, right? right? So how does she treat you when you're helping her? She's difficult. She's difficult. But, but that's not, that's not aging. Everybody says, oh, when they get older, they get very difficult. That's, and, and I try to explain to people that's, it's not the aging process. She's always been that way. That's her personality. She's just a very difficult person, very critical and my way or the highway. And you're not doing things correctly, or you're not doing it correctly, or it, there's a lot of She's very hypercritical and it's, it's, it's challenging. It's challenging. She doesn't receive help well. And it's, it's, it's mentally challenging. Let's put it that way. And that's the reason I could never live with, we could never live with each other because it's just, I think I had to, I have to set that boundary for my own mental health. And so one of the exercises I I like to do on this podcast is if you did not exist, if everything else was exactly the same and we did some sort of like 
what that what's that Christmas movie where you you like get pulled out of your life or something and then you watch from the window or something. And so if if Alexis did not exist, what what would be happening right now? If I didn't exist, I think she'd probably be relying more on neighbors and things like that. She has very lovely neighbors who, who are very kind and help her as much as they can. I think she would rely on, on neighbors more until she's, she wasn't able to do for herself and then, and then she, would, she would get help. I think that's what would happen. So if you think about it in those terms, so she sounds like she's resourceful enough to, to find the help, but she's also accepting of your help, but then not specifically glowingly appreciative of it either. Whose opinion are you most interested in in this dynamic? So you mentioned your opinion of yourself, like, am I a loyal daughter? Am I doing the right thing? Am I abandoning somebody else, right? I'm assuming you're, you have an interest in her opinion well as well, right? So is her opinion that you're doing what a daughter should do, although that's not necessarily what she did as a daughter at some point, but, but her idea, and then do you have a greater like family or community concern that if you weren't going down there one day a week to help her, that somebody would think Alexis was not a good daughter, like whose opinions and what's the ranking of those three area. So yourself, your mom, and then the greater community. I think the only opinion that matters is my own because I have to sleep at night. And I know this is a temporary situation. There is, this is a finite situation. One day she will pass. And I think of what, well, how am I going to feel when she passes? Will I feel that I did enough? Will I feel that I was good enough? It's really my own opinion because friends and and other family members and and what such they they tell me just hire somebody she she just has to accept it and and you have to really maintain your mental health and blah 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 blah. and I just feel like I am where I am supposed to be right now and this is what I'm supposed to be doing and I just have to do it to the best of my ability it's her, her opinion I mean I have to honor it and I really don't care what other people think I mean just don't. But it's I have to live with myself, and I never one of the one of the biggest fears I have is looking back with regret that I could have done more, or or that I didn't do enough. So I one I just want to reiterate, thank you for being so candid. This actually makes this conversation really relevant to people, and I'm going to ask you some some deeper questions on that. Okay. So if I was the truth fairy, and I could come by and say, Alexis. I have determined that you did do enough, that you are good enough, that you're a fantastic daughter, native to right where you're here right now without doing anything else. And that was assured. And you could think that. And how would your behavior change? What would your actions change? I don't think they would. Um, I don't think they would because knowing that she doesn't feel comfortable with strangers in the home. You know, knowing that would not prompt me to, to hire somebody or unless it was 100% necessary. You know what I mean? Like, I, like knowing that, oh, I'm a good daughter and I'm doing the right thing, whatever. Would I, would I just pull back and take a little more for myself and, and hire somebody and just, she'll have to just deal with it. I still wouldn't do that because I know that she would be, I don't want her her last year or two of her life to be unhappy. I mean, she sacrificed a lot to take care of my father. And so it wouldn't change anything. I still respect her her wishes that she doesn't want a stranger in the house. She just doesn't. And and I and I respect that. And so I, I wouldn't change anything. Understood, understood. Good. So and I and I I'll reiterate to people that listen to these conversations. I don't have any skin in the game as to how or when anybody should do what they do. My interest is always in how they arrived at that conclusion and how they decided. And so um, you mentioned a lot about trying to regret proof the period of time where she no longer lives here. 
And one of the things I think is so difficult being in the situation you're in at this very moment is competing regret proofing. There's mm -hmm. regret proofing, like, did I do enough for them at the end of their life? But the way that it works is that same time frame, which is an un, unclear duration, right? Four years, 15 years, it, it, it's anywhere in there, right? <laughs> Maybe shorter or longer. But it's almost like we can, I, I've seen sort of these regret loops in our brain of, well, I don't want to have this thought after, after she passes. And so that informs how I behave today. But what happens oftentimes is after the, the passing, then there's a delayed regret also of the, the life that you have now, because that's the only life you have as well, right? And there's this sort of like, well, yeah, they're much older. They have a shorter time frame. We don't, we don't always know that, right? And especially being in medicine, you're like, I don't, that is not always true, right? And that we'd never know. We, it's hard to look and say, well, they're at the end of their life. So, you know, that I know the end might be imminent, but I've also seen people in their 80s who have parents in their 90s. It's just this interesting, <laughs> the way of nature is, that's actually possible to happen. And so we can, I, I look at this kind of regret proofing and then arranging how we run our lives today under this regret proofing for this one sort of line, right? But then the next line underneath that is how is that reconciled with regret proofing? Hey, your kid, you're actually empty nested now, right? So your kids are out of the house. This is supposed to be that time where you could reinvent yourself and you could pivot and you could do something exciting and 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 are you sort of stuck in this suspended idea that maybe her life is is on the shorter days left and and you're just sort of subject to the laws of nature and you'll continue sort of in this isolated way until the laws of nature take over and and now you'll kind of pivot back to yourself or like how do you and I don't mean this critically at all I promise I I, I mean it from like I can, like, no, I, I think the brain can get this dopamine hit from like, oh no, this is it. This is, I'm a loyal person and she can't have it this way. So I'll do it this way. And I, and I'm not saying that I don't do that myself. It, it's more the idea that, that the brain finds that to be a completed, like thought and action loop. And it will re have revenge on us sometimes when we get to the other side of it and we're like, oh, wait, look at all these things I missed. Look at all these girls trips. I, I, I didn't go on or this best friend I lost touch with or, or whatever. And, and so how does your brain and respectfully, maybe it can't even do this right now, but how does it reconcile the future regrets? Like which regret is more important? I struggle with this daily. I, I really do. I feel like I'm in a holding pattern. I'm just in a holding pattern where I can't, I don't want to live where I'm living right now. I, I, you know, the only reason I'm living in this part of the country is to be closer to her. I, I'd love to move down south and start a new life and, and do lots of things. There's lots of things I, I want to do in my life now that I am an empty nester and, and, and such, but I struggle with it daily. I feel like I'm in a holding pattern. I can't move. I, I can't do anything. And the yeah, I'm not getting any younger. I'm going to be 60 years old. And, and yes, she could go on another five years. There's a lot of longevity in my family and I'll be 65 when she passes. And, and what am I like, like all these years that, that I could have lived. Yeah. I struggle with that daily. I do. And I tried to I, I just try to figure out ways where I can get a little piece of my life back, even if it's a small amount, even if I could just try to do more for myself or just figure something out to bring some joy into my life so that it's not, not so dismal. But this, yeah, I struggle with that on the daily. It's not like I've just like, I'm not, I'm not this pious person that just self-sacrificing. No, I think about it every day that my life is passing me by. And I'm not getting any younger either. And this could go on for a long time. My, my dad was on death's door for 20 years. I mean, how many times I called my brother, he, he's in the hospital and, and they said, call your brother because this is it. There were like three or four times where I called my brother and he flew up and my dad pulled through. And so 
I think about that and it's not a day that doesn't go by and that I don't think I'm in this holding pattern and I'm either going to be miserable and, and depressed, or I'm just going to say, look, I am where I'm supposed to be and I'll do what I can and just try to make the best of it and just try to find some joy in my life and try to find some fulfillment in my life. And that's where things like the recent conference there, where I met you participating in things like that come into play and, and trying to maintain my social circle and trying to keep my health and exercise and, and then just self-care and things like that. Yes, I can't move and I can't make big dramatic changes right now. I can't make big career changes right now. Yeah. And, and that sucks, but I try to do what I can to maintain my sanity. Let's put it that way. And I'll just do a quick side note. So you and I sat together at a conference, just kind of randomly at the same table. And we we're all talking about our passion projects. And I mentioned to you, I was doing a podcast and a course on aging parents. And you said, oh my gosh, that's my life right now. I remember you just immediately, you just looked at me and I knew you had a story. So if we could just allow ourselves one hypothetical situation. So you mentioned move down South. Do you mean like Texas or Florida or? I, I, I don't know. I always have this image of me going to the Carolinas. The Carolina. Oh, see. okay. So for you, that's down South. Okay. <laughs> it's I am well South of that. Okay. The Carolinas. So, okay. So there's this charming future partner that lives in Charleston and this perfect part-time flexible job and a beautiful house with a garden and a social scene that's great for you. And they come knocking on your doorstep and you go talk to your mom and you say, look at this incredible opportunity that's laid itself out. I really can't pass this up. I'm going to need you to get some extra support. What would that conversation look like? Wow, that's a deep question. I think that conversation would go like, I would say that, and she would say, well, go ahead, go do what you need to do and, and kind of make me feel guilty. Go, go live your life. Go do what you got to do. Don't worry about me. But who would feel guilty? Me. So if, all, so if, if what's the, and I, and again, I'm not, this is just a thought exercise, right? So yeah. if the difference between your life now and the life I just described mm-hmm. is you feeling guilty, you're already feeling guilty. That's true. <laughs> right? So that's you just you're already feeling dismal yeah, and true. isolated and guilty and not good enough. I mean, I'm not sure that that's a bad trade-off because if it, when we have adults that are, have the, the mental ability and the financial means, now we didn't talk about your, your parents' finances, but if they have enough retirement money or enough money to bring somebody in to kind of supplement and she's choosing to stay in her home instead of going into a retirement place, it seems to me like she's pretty darn clear about what she wants in her life. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and you're, you're facilitating this version of her life. Yeah. I'm um, the, and she, I'm the enabler. <laughs> she already thinks that you're not doing a perfect job. She already thinks that she's expecting all of this. And there's this whole other life that she doesn't either know about. And if she did, she'd be happy for you. Or if she did, she'd guilt you. I don't know that you're having a totally different experience in Charleston. Right. I mean, and again, I have no dog in the fight, right? People always end up making their own decisions. Yeah. But the whole reason we're talking about this mm-hmm. is it's fascinating to me having had these conversations over and over again. And because as I'm a rehab physician, I see these conversations happen in very compressed time frames, yeah. which is this grand reconciliation of this relationship with a parent. And at the end of the day, I'm not sure we're doing the equation correctly. I'm not sure that we have the variables all accounted for because it's such an emotional and such a charged topic of what a parent must have. Mm-hmm. And what's always interesting is they tend to have, or we, we respect their the way that they like to live, which is she likes to live without a stranger in the home, Right. But you like to live with a social situation. You like to live with a certain, in certain settings. Like, it's almost like, well, then whose preferences end up mattering? And, and what ends up, what I end up seeing 
is there's almost this like, and you've described it perfectly, this idea that, well, let me just hold on. Let me just like wear the shoes that are too tight because I know I'm going to take them off in a minute, oh, maybe 10 minutes. Oh, maybe I'll take them off tomorrow, but I'm just going to stand here in these shoes that are too tight that are hurting my feet like hell. I'm going to keep a smile on my face because I know I'm supposed to be doing this. This is where I'm supposed to be. And the truth is for the vast majority of situations, she would figure it out yeah. and she would perhaps even be happy or be like, man, she's a chip off the old block. She's going to do what she wants to do, right? Her yeah. way or the highway. And it's almost this irony of this dance at the very end, which mm-hmm. is I can show up and love you as a parent. I can show up the best way I can within, you know, considering my own life first and not because I'm selfish, but because I need to sustain myself. What if she lives another 15 years? Yeah. Right. And it's almost like, I don't know this, you might live forever. And so I've got to sustain myself because if I'm the only one looking out for the last person you have on earth, then where is that person and how are they taking care of themselves? Are they living in a situation that they're enjoying and protecting? And so it's almost like if you reverse the equation and the truth is you are the last person that she has, then you could also write a completely different story, which would be, I'm the person I have to invest in. I'm the person I have to look out for. I'm the person that wants to move. And so I'll move, right? You have a job now, maybe the job could move. But anyway, so I, and I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just wanting to think about this in larger terms. And I feel like we get stuck because it's a topic we don't like to talk about very much. It's not a very sexy topic, but I think it's, it's meaningfully impacting women. And without these conversations and without the mindset or without even exploring it and allowing ourselves to do so, that we're, you were on the wrong side of the equation. And it doesn't mean that people don't deserve maximum quality care at the end of their years. I mean, all of us are going to want that. But how that's negotiated with regard to regret and preferences and all that kind of stuff, that to me is where there's like the, the margin. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like if she was able to care for herself and had some situation like your dad had, of course, that's a completely different thing. But mo- the majority of the time, most aging adults don't end up having dementia. Mm-hmm. just end up making decisions for themselves. And so right. with that said, and I, now I'm going to, now I'm going to get off my soapbox about it, but how does, how does your brain download that information? How does your brain download that thought? Intellectually, I know exactly what you're saying. And I think the fact that I've not been doing this all that long, I mean, my dad passed in 2021. So that's really when I had to pick up and really, and I, and I just left my practice just a couple of months ago. So it hasn't been that long. And there's not a day that doesn't go by that I know that I'm in this holding pattern and that my life is on hold. And I think it's going to reach a critical mass. I think there's going to be a turning point where I'm going to have to make that decision. It's it's either my my life or or, or my my wishes, my my well being or hers. That we, we I've got to balance that. And I think it just is it, it just hasn't hit. I mean, I mean, I know the situation I'm in. I just hasn't, haven't come to that point yet. And I know I will. I know I will. Especially when you, when you have one of those milestone birthdays, like 60, right. like, oh my God, like that is one of those milestone birthdays where you question, like, what have I done with my life? What am I going to do with the rest of my life? It's a pivotal point. And that day is coming. So I know that day is coming where I'm going to have to bite the bullet. Could be, because you know what? She, she could, live, she could live another 10 years. Her entire family has lived well close to a hundred. So yeah, there could be another 10 years of this. And I'm well aware of that. And I think this is just such a new thing because I just changed jobs and I just took on this role. I mean, I've always been the caretaker for both of them, but, but for her, for, for specifically for her, it's not been that long. So I know that day is coming and I have to make that decision and, 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 I know I will do what's right for me. I know, I know, you know, that I will, I will bite the bullet at some point. So um, that's it. So you feel like you have your own back at some point, like you're still in a transition phase. It hasn't settled yet. At, at some point. Yes. Right now, I, like I said, it's not, a, there's not a day that doesn't go by that I don't, that I, I know I'm in a halting pattern. I know that there's so much that I want to do and so much that I want to experience and live and that I can't because I'm tethered. And that's okay right now. But when I turn 60, 
<laughs> I know there's gonna, there's gonna, like I said, it's gonna reach critical mass and there's gonna come up a point where I'm gonna have to bite the bullet and say, I'm sorry, but I'm going to hire someone. And if you wanna fire them, fine, but I'm not gonna be around. I'm moving or whatever, whatever the case is. I have to do this for, for my own, for my own good. Well, what know? is it mentally about turning 60 you feel like is motivating? Like you think you, you said, I'll think this way when I turn 60. And then what's, is it, you what, know, what are you making that mean? I, I, there's a lot I want to do still. There's a lot. I've, I've not well traveled. I, I, I want to travel more. I, 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 there's a book that, I, that I'm working on. There, there's so much that I want to experience in life. And, I'm, and I'm, I know I'm delaying that. I want to move. And I, I, the North, I'm tired of the Northeast. I want to move out of the Northeast. I, I know I'm putting those things on delay. And, and, and 60 is kind of like, you don't have, it's like when you realize you don't have that much time. So you got to make your move. You know what I mean? I, I guess for me, that's what it represents. Like, if you want to accomplish your goals and, 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 and get your bucket list checked off, you got to, you got to get moving. So I know there's that point is coming. That point is coming. And I think, like I said, it, this is so new that I'm, I'm kind of complacent right now, but I know there's going to come a day where I, I'm going to realize, look, I want, this is, the, I want to do this, this, and this. And if I don't do this and this and this with her, I'm not going to achieve those things. And I'm, and I'm going to die with regrets. So I know that day's coming and I wouldn't, I will make that, that decision. I just not going to do it right now. Sure. Well, if you're amenable, maybe at that point, we can circle back and do a second episode after you've kind of reached that point yeah. and, and check back in. I think that'd be interesting, but before, before I let you go here, I'm super excited and interested in you sharing more of your story through your own focus on midlife and, and pivoting. Can you tell me just a little bit more about kind of the content you have on Instagram and you've got a ton of followers that are very loyal to, to watching your life lessons too. And all the things that you share about health and can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. I'm, I hold middle-aged, particularly middle-aged women, very dear to my heart because I'm a middle-aged woman. And a lot of what I focused on in my practice when I was still practicing was middle-aged life, health, middle especially menopause, perimenopause, that sort of thing, and, and the challenges it brings with it. But it's not only health challenges, there's career, career changes. Navigating midlife is really difficult sometimes, especially for women. And that's a, a big, big passion project for me is, is helping other midlife women navigate that time of life. I've been through it all. I've been through a divorce. I've been through career changes. I've been through taking care of elderly parents and, um, you know, so I feel like I have enough insight, a lot of insight in, into that sort of thing. I, I had to figure out my own health. I've, I've had all kinds of menopausal issues and health issues where I couldn't find help through traditional medicine. And that's why I turned to functional medicine. And I actually helped my own, it cured my own migraines and Whereas I was seeing a neurologist for years and was on medication daily for migraines. So I know there's a lot of women out there in my shoes and that's my passion project. I want to share what I know and what I learned through my experiences with other women, because I know there's a lot of women suffering and not knowing that there is an answer. There is another way. There is an alternative. And they may, they may just not be aware. They may feel stuck. And I want to be an inspiration to those people because I've been through a lot. Yeah. career-wise with, with burnout, with taking care of a parent health-wise with my own health issues. I've been through a lot and I like to share it with other women. So that's kind of my, my passion project. And where, where could they find you if they wanted to, to learn more or, or check, check out some of your information? I, well, I've got some videos and information and health information and stuff on, on Instagram. You can find me at, at, Alexis Scopal MD on Instagram. And I'll make sure I put links in the show notes about that as well. So thank you. 
Well, thank you so much. I've enjoyed our conversation. Again, I thank you for being vulnerable and sharing with us all that you've been through. And, and hopefully we'll catch up with you again after the big birthday. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Hey, everyone. It's Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you really enjoyed the podcast. I am here to let you know I can be found on RebeccaTapiaMD.com. You can come over there to learn about my new course launching this summer, dealing with mindset for aging parents, getting prepared, all the good stuff, sharing my opinions and life lessons. Uh, Also could just join my email list so I can share more about my thoughts about these podcasts and more insights there. Thank you so much for being here.